Hallelujah. Well, it's, let's open our Bibles now. And um, we're going to begin in the book of Romans. Thank God for that wonderful letter. Thank God for the entire Bible. It's good, it's God's Word, and it's able to set you free. It's able to empower you. We're going to talk about something tonight that uh, I think is very real to all of us. It's part of our daily life. It's our walk with God and how, how that walk is maintained, how it grows, how it flourishes. We understand the reason we can walk with God at all is because of the precious blood of Jesus shed for us on our behalf that we stand righteous before Him. And it's important to know that before you go any further because if you don't know that you're loved, if you don't know that you're accepted, if you don't know that you're embraced by God, you won't receive correction very well. It turns out abused kids really have a hard time being corrected or disciplined because they've been abused and they don't know truly unless something's happened in their life, they don't know that they're loved. You find the people in the body of Christ that have the hardest time receiving correction from the Lord or discipline are the people that aren't convinced that He loves them. They're not convinced that they're in. They're not fully convinced, sometimes even that they're saved. And so there's a fear. And the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And I I want us to go to Romans 10 where, where the Apostle Paul is addressing an issue that's arisen out of um, his own background. You understand the Apostle Paul was trained as a rabbi, very well trained by one of the best teachers in the land, Gamaliel. And this was a man who understood the law and understood very well, um, but had no salvation in it. He was a man who did good things. If you look and he lists a couple places in the scripture, he lists his resume and it's really shiny. It's a really good resume. He says, if anybody gets in, it would be me. If anybody would get in according to law, it'd be me. And yet that, that knowledge and even that behavior wasn't enough to save him. What it took was an encounter with Jesus Christ and an understanding that he was saved not through his own work, but through the work of Jesus. And so in chapter 10, he addresses some of his, old, his brothers that still have not come to this realization. Here's what he says about them in verse 1. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now realize, these, are, these may seem like bad guys to the rest of the church. These are the guys that are throwing rocks at him. These are the guys that are wanting to kill him. But these are a lot of, in a lot of cases, his old, let's put it in today's term, college roommates, his, his buddies, his, his old friends and colleagues that now want to kill him. And he has an affection for them because of the love of God that's in his heart now. He doesn't hate them. He doesn't resent them. Even when they throw rocks at his head, he still seems to love them. And he looks back at these these relationships and these friends and these colleagues that he's had as he was training to be uh, a a, a rabbi um, and and for a time even an enforcer of the the faith. And uh, he looks back at these guys and his desire for them is that they be saved. He says, this is my heart's desire and uh, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. And apparently a zeal for God is not enough. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So it was a misplaced zeal. We might say that about, for instance, uh, you may have met uh, 
somebody who's a, a Muslim that's, that's a lot more passionate about his faith than you. And he has a zeal, but it's very, very misplaced. He thinks he's serving God. But of course, Jesus said, you can't come to God without me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so, uh, much like those people, he says, they've got a zeal. They're, they're passionate, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. So, it's, so how do you establish your own righteousness? Well, you attempt to be a very good person. But of course, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Nobody pulled it off. As hard as we try, nobody could be a perfect person. So he said they tried to do this, and they tried to establish their own righteousness, but not knowing about the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So what does it mean to subject yourself to the righteousness of God? It means to fully put yourself under it and say, this is what saves me here. You had to let go of one thing to grab onto the other. And they're holding so tight to their own righteousness that they couldn't let go of that and just say, my hope is in you. My trust is in you. My hope is, what, what does that old hymn say? On Christ a solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. As solid as it may seem, it's sinking. They put all their faith in their own work and their own good behavior, their own abstinence of evil. But they could never be good enough. And he says, since they were holding so tightly to their own goodness, they didn't embrace the actual righteousness of God. And he says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, The man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend in the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The word of faith being, the, in this case, the faith that my hope, my faith, my trust is firmly and solely in Jesus Christ. And only that. Thank God because of Jesus Christ. Because of the grace of God, I can now live a life worthy of the calling I've been given. I've been empowered. I've been enabled to live a life that somebody can look at and say, I'm going to glorify God, just as Jesus said. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? We know it's believers that believe that Jesus, or sorry, that God created the world. The chicken came first. And in this case, salvation's got to come first. You can't do anything to please God without faith. So here he says, That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. In Loon Lake this last Sunday, uh, we spent some time talking about Jesus as our high priest. And that is an important thing. We're through the book of Hebrews where in several chapters, it's hammering in the fact that we have Jesus as a high priest. The important thing about a high priest, which is a concept that we don't relate super well to without 
coming in the church for a while because our culture doesn't do this. But to the Hebrew people that were reading this, they understood it very well. God had set up a system where there was an atonement for their sin. It wasn't a complete removal of sin. It was a covering of sin. And he had set up a system where they had priests and then they had a high priest. And the high priest, above all the other ones, represented God to the people and the people to God. So the high priest would make sacrifices for you so that your sin wouldn't be held against you. The high priest would go to God on your behalf and intercede for you. The Bible says that high priest had some flaws. So he had to make sacrifices for himself and for the people. And he had to do it over and over again because it was only temporary and they kept messing up. And even he kept messing up. It says that Jesus came and he took our flesh. He took flesh and blood, partook of our nature, became just like us, was tempted in everything. And we can think of three big temptations but let me tell you, he had 40 days of that stuff. The Bible gives us three. But he was tempted for 40 days, and in Hebrews it says he was tempted in everything. So there is nothing you've ever been tempted with that Jesus has not been tempted with. You may say, well, was Jesus tempted with cocaine? Because I don't think that existed. Well, you realize that there's a lot of temptations that have the same root. Whatever the root of that addiction was, he was tempted with. Whatever the root of lust was, he was tempted with it. These men that are tempted to go to that strip club, he was tempted. But he didn't give in. He didn't entertain it. He encountered it with the word of God. It's not a sin to be tempted, guys. Jesus was tempted. It's not a sin to be shot at. The problem is, and, and Martin Luther said this, he said, of course, he had a monk's tonsure back in his day. And if you know what a monk's tonsure was, it was, a, it was, you shave the top of your head and you have just hair around your head. It's a very silly looking thing. Have you ever seen any Robin Hood stuff? Friar Tuck, picture that. Uh, can you imagine what that looked like to a bird? <laughs> right? That's, that's paradise right there. I mean, that's brilliant. And Martin Luther said this, and I believe maybe he said this from experience. He said, I can't stop birds from flying over my head. I can stop them from making a nest in my hair. And his point was, you can't stop a thought from coming to you, but you can stop it from making a home in your brain. And you can, you can stop it from taking root in your heart. The two ways you do that are, don't entertain it, don't shake hands with it, make friends with it, and say, well, maybe there's a bright side to that. Second thing is, shut your mouth and don't say it. Don't say, boy, I wish I could do that. As a junior high kid, I used to do that. I used to say to people, I mean, I, I, I kept my nose pretty clean. I had a knowledge that I had spirit-filled parents. And you may not know why that kept me in line, but I'll tell you why. They seemed to always know when I did anything. No matter how sneaky I was, I came home, and they knew that something was wrong. And they wouldn't let up until I told them. So it kept me pretty clean because I knew that the Holy Spirit would tell on me. If he, you know, I loved him, but he tells on me. And uh, the reason he did is because he loved me. Um, but in junior high, I used to have this, this dilemma because I had friends at school that really couldn't be my friends outside of school. The reason was because outside of school, they wanted to do stuff that I didn't want to have anything to do with. 
But sometimes you're not always as brave as you want to be when you're sitting in front of the mirror. And thank God, God's given, I mean, I've just, you know, since then, and when I got into high school, I just embraced everything that God had, and I just said, forget this, I'm going all or, all or nothing. And uh, I got some boldness, thank God. But I used to say this in junior high, and they'd say, you want to come do this? I'd say, I can't, I'm a Christian. And I realize how lame that sounds, how wimpy that sounds. I can't, I'm a Christian, like you would if you could. But then I started to realize that there's a very good reason that God said, don't do this stuff. So it's kind of like saying, you know, do you want to drink some bleach with us? I can't. My mom says I shouldn't drink bleach. I, I can't. I'm sorry, guys. I wish I could, but I can't. Oh, that's, that's really dumb, doesn't it? That's really lame. I mean, just say, you know, hey, you want to hit each other on the head with hammers? I can't. I just, I just got a haircut. I can't. You know, of course not. You don't want to. Half the, I mean, everything that they were asking me to do would have hurt me, hurt my relationships, and hurt, I mean, just hurt everything that had been built up inside of me. There was a very good reason God said, don't do that. And I started to change my, I can't do that, to, I don't have to do that. Thank God I'm free. I have to do that. I don't want to do that. You begin to understand that, that God had a reason for that, and I don't want anything to do with that. And um, stop being such a wimp and started saying, no, I don't want to do that. You don't have to do that either. And uh, changed it from this, I can't, like I was just going to get in trouble if I did. And there's this very real thought that, that um, you know, he says here that there's a, 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 a temptation for us to seek to establish our own goodness, to seek to establish our own righteousness. And when you do that, you reject the righteousness of God. We understand that, like I was saying, we have a great high priest. And this high priest does not have to make sacrifices anymore. The Bible said he made it once for all. And everyone that believes partakes in that sacrifice. And our high priest is a mediator between us and God and between God and us. And that's Jesus Christ. And so here's the deal. We don't have to do that stuff anymore. But when we are tempted, the Bible says, and I said all that to get right back around to this, when we are tempted, it says that Jesus was tempted in all things, yet without sin. And it says because He was, He is able to come to the aid to those that are tempted. He's able to come to the rescue. In fact, chapter 2 says that Jesus does not come to the help of angels. We talked about this in Loon Lake, that uh, sometimes... and. and and it's addressed in Hebrews, people put angels on this big pedestal like they're the greatest things in the world, and sometimes people will try to comfort you by saying, ah, well, your, your, your dad went on to be the Lord, or your, your, your sister went on to be the Lord, or says all this, and well, they're just angels in heaven now. But you've got to understand, that's a demotion. That's, that's knocked down. The angels look at us and go, I wish I was you. And he says, to which of the angels... Has God ever said, today you're my son? He says about Jesus, regarding Jesus, and it quotes from the psalm, he said, I made you for a little while to be lower than the angels, but then crowned you with glory, highly exalted you. For a little while he was lower, and then exalted. 
And so when we look at all of this, it says, He surely does not come to the aid of angels. It says Jesus does not come to the aid of angels, but He comes to the rescue. And in fact, the original, he, uh, original Greek says, He takes hold of the descendants of Abraham. So Jesus is your high priest. But that's not just uh, some guy that you sing some songs to and talk about and maybe draw a picture of. He's meant to be a part of your everyday life. And as your high priest, you have to understand that he is daily making intercession for you, that his blood has completely made you perfect, holy, made you a saint. That's what the scripture calls us, saints. It's not a misnomer, it's not a mistake to call you a saint. It's who we are. And as such, we have to understand and, and embrace the grace of God and say, okay, if that's what got me born again, that's what keeps me, is His precious blood, His salvation. I've been greatly saved. I've been greatly loved. And you've got to just fully put all your hope in that, put all your trust in that. And so when it says we're not trying to seek to establish our own righteousness, we've got to talk about something here. Because I started to notice in my own life that I would understand that, that I'd been forgiven. I understood that I'd been set free. I understood that the blood of Jesus cleansed me of all unrighteousness. I understood that. I understood that the Bible says, as if we walk in the light, as He in the light, as He's in the light, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us, and that word cleanses is in the present indicative, which means it's over and over. It's never-ending. It's continually cleansing you. So I understand that. I started to notice in my own life that when I'd come to the Lord, I would make mistakes from time to time. Did you hear what I just called it? Mistake. But really what it was, was a sin. And I needed to embrace the fact that Jesus paid for that sin and stop dressing it up pretty and squirting perfume on it so that somehow it would be less evil in His sight and just say, I agree with you, Jesus. It's wrong. Thank God I'm forgiven. You see, I started to make these little euphemisms. I started to notice when I'd go to the Lord, I'd say, God, you know, I, I did this. And, and, and instead of calling it what he called it, I'd make up a nicer word for it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> but we, we all, we, from time to time, we let the flesh rule. We disobey the Spirit, we obey the flesh, and that's simply called sin. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. I don't need to describe it to you because the, Jesus has removed it as far as the east is from the west. He threw it in the sea of forgetfulness. That's not part of me anymore. But what I had tried to do was instead of coming to him and being honest, I came to him like somehow I could be a lawyer and make it a little bit better. Like, if I don't call it that word that he calls it, maybe I'll get a lesser sentence. Well, he paid for it already. Jesus did not pay half price for your sin. He fully took the full brunt of that on the cross and paid for it all. And the problem with us dressing it up and trying to justify it is that you never really overcome it until you agree with God that it is what it is and it's not mine anymore. Do you know what does the word confession really mean? 
We've gotten messed up through history because for a long time, confession meant that you went to a guy and you told him what you did wrong and he somehow made it right with you and God and now you're clean. But the Bible says that we have one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That high priest, he's our mediator. There's not a man in the world that can absolve you of something that he paid for. So when we think of confession, sometimes we go back to that old way of thinking. People even taught, you know, if you didn't confess this sin before you died, you go to hell. Well, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? Imagine a man just got saved. Imagine a man that came out of a rough background, came up to the front, received Jesus, says, thank you, Jesus. I receive your salvation. I receive your forgiveness. He steps out into the street praising the Lord. Now, he hasn't cleaned up his mind yet. He's still got to frick this tongue because he's using some pretty bad language. Now, we've had people like that. I mean, <laughs> we've had people that just got born again, love Jesus, and then <laughs> got spooked by what God was doing and, and said, oh, and used a bad word. And they're like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, I, you know. Imagine this man goes out into the street praising the Lord. Then a car hits him. And in pain, for a moment, he uses the name of Jesus in vain. He doesn't mean it, but he did it. Is that wrong? Yeah, it is. What if he dies before he can say, I'm sorry? Do you actually believe that man's going to hell? No. I believe that when Jesus paid for your sin, he, paid, he looked forward and he looked backward. He paid for it. So we've got to take confession out of its old human roots that we've turned it into and say what it actually means. The word confession in the Bible, if you look at the original word, means something. It means to say the same thing. Say the same thing. Agree. When we confess that Jesus was Lord, we agreed with Him, you're Lord. When we come to a place of confessing, and when we confess that sin is sin, what you're doing is you're coming to the same place as Jesus. Come to the same place and confessing what He says about you, first of all. Thank God I'm righteous through Him. Uh, he is my salvation. He is my peace. He has broken down those walls. I've been set free. But you're also agreeing with Him that I don't want that in my life. That's not right. I, it's not a part of me. I agree with you. It's wrong. And I embrace the fact that I've been forgiven. I've been set free. Don't try to dress it up in a nice little dress and take it home to your parents and introduce it. It is what it is. Let it be bad. Let it be wrong. It's not yours anymore. Get away from it and agree with God and say, that's wrong. That's wrong. I agree. This is wrong. And I agree. I'm forgiven. I thank God I'm forgiven. I, I fully, the Bible says, the, the word repent, comes from two words, one to change and the other one to mind or think. Change your thinking, change your heart, change your mind, which means when you repent, you turn, you do a 180 and say, I don't think that way anymore. So if a man falls into adultery, steps in. <laughs> you can't really fall in, can you? But if you... Enter into adultery. God of all mercy 
causes that Holy Spirit inside that man to say, this isn't right. And he stops and he turns. And I believe that man is very right to say, God, that's adultery. I'm not going to call it an affair. Because an affair sounds really nice. An affair to remember. A lovely affair. What a lovely affair this was. We had tea and crustless cucumber sandwiches. What a beautiful affair. No, it is what it is. It's sin, it's wrong, it's adultery. Listen, the reason we try to dress it up is because we're not convinced that it's paid for. And we somehow think, if I make it sound better, I won't get in as much trouble. You have to embrace the fact that turn from it, just get rid of it, and let Jesus wash you and say, you are forgiven, you're clean. Thank God I'm clean. Thank God I'm forgiven. I don't need to dress it up. I don't need to make it sound better. I don't need to try to justify it. The blood of Jesus did not justify your sin. It justified you. Thank God. Didn't make my past mistakes. See, there you go. You can call them mistakes. It's easier to call them a mistake. You guys will forgive me more if I call them a mistake, right? Our pastors made mistakes. Those past sins aren't a part of me anymore. The East will never come in contact with the West. It's not like the North and South Pole where there's a point where if you go far enough North, you'll eventually start going South. But if you start going East, there's not a point where you start going West. You're always going East, right? And Jesus, the Bible says, as far as the East is from the West, so far as He's removed our sin from us, embrace the fact that His blood is big enough to cover the ugly stuff. Be bold enough to say what God says about it. I hate it. It's ugly. And it's not mine anymore. And it'll have no power over me because I'm set free. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus has put to death, put to death the deeds of the flesh. See, I've met too many people who try to cover up these things or find a justification. I know it was wrong, but I had a good reason. And what you're doing is you're making friends with that thing. And it has a power over you. You need to embrace the power of the cross and say it's wrong. But I've been made right. So I don't have to call this good when God calls it bad. I call it what it is. And I call him what he, I call myself what he calls me. Righteous. And I'm not going to partake in that stuff anymore. Don't try to dress it up. Don't try to make excuses for it. It is what it is. You let God be God. You let the blood of Jesus cleanse you and cover you, and it continually cleanses you. Whether you knew it or not, it was cleansing you, and you need to just come to the same place, confess it just like Jesus said, say, I hate it just like you hate it, and I don't have to do that anymore, thank God. I want to read you something from the book of 2 Corinthians. This particular passage of Scripture that we're about to read has helped me in my walk. It's helped me be a pastor. It's helped me understand our relationship with correction, our relationship with repentance, how we're supposed to address these things. Because we have a practical example (laughs) stuck right in the middle of the theology. So I can now look at this and go, oh, that's how I'm supposed to handle it. 
many of you have ever read 1 Corinthians? Do you ever remember that part in 1 Corinthians that gets kind of awkward? Like, 1 Corinthians 13, that's great. We'll read that at weddings. 1 Corinthians 12, we all got a part in the body. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 14, yeah, I, I thank God that I pray in tongues more than you all. Praise the Lord, spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 6. Somebody's getting in big trouble. The whole church is getting called into the principal's office. I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> There's a great point in 1 Corinthians 6 that says we're not responsible for the sins of the world. So we're not responsible for what they're doing wrong. It's not our job to judge the world. He says we, we come to expect that they're, they're in the world. They're going to act like the world. They're in the world. Don't be shocked. He says, as for us in this church, he says, we, gotta, we watch ourselves. We judge ourselves, and, and we take care of each other. Well, in 2 Corinthians, he refers to a letter he's written before. It could very well be that letter we're just talking about, 1 Corinthians, or it could be another letter we don't know about. But if it was that letter in 1 Corinthians, we know what the issue was. There was a man in the church who took his father's wife. And nobody stopped him. Nobody said it was wrong. Everybody was just too afraid to say anything. Didn't know what to say. They let it happen. And apparently this guy just keeps coming to church. Nobody's ever brought it up. You know, presumably the other guy is still in the church too. We don't know, but see, he's still alive. He's not dead. His wife's been taken from him. Do you know how painful that might have been? Who's speaking for him? God's love was such that he cared about everybody in that church. He cared about the father. He cared about the son. He cared about the wife. He cared about all these people. This was not his best. This was a perversion of what he created. And he expected somebody to do something about it. And had they, and had that young man, in fact, we see that now, whether it was this incident or another incident in a letter that we don't have, we find that by 2 Corinthians, by this second letter, whoever was the guy that had really messed up had made things right and had been restored and had just, I mean, as far as God's concerned, had been as clean as if he never did anything. And the church treated him like he'd never done anything wrong. They loved him. They embraced him. But for a bit, it was uncomfortable and it was awkward because they got a letter that wasn't too happy. Now, like I said, we don't know if it's that First Corinthians that he's talking about or another letter, but he apparently wrote a letter that God told them to write. And this is what you've got to understand about people that are, that are ministering by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. They'll say things because God's telling them to say it, but inside they're going, don't make me say that. Please don't make me say that. They're going to hate me. They'll say it because they'd rather make you mad than God. I mean, but <laughs> at the same time, they're like, oh, please don't make me say that to them. Please don't make me say that to them. Please don't make me say that to them. I want them to like me. And the Apostle Paul s said sort of the same thing. He said, you know, I kind of wanted you to like me, and I'm writing it. And he says, I'm trembling. I'm scared. God, what are you making me write? Do I have to write this letter? But he did it. I want to start with 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11, he says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. 
You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial being another word for the devil. That's a good question. Whenever you start to think, does light have fellowship with darkness, then bring it back to the point he brings it at. Does Jesus have anything to do with the devil? Do they work together? Are they buddies? No, they're not. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them. So this is a promise that he made. And the Apostle Paul is bringing out through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, here's the promise of God to you. This is a promise, guys. Here's what God says about you. I will dwell in them, not just with them, but in them and walk among them. Oh, praise God. Picture this, Jesus walking amongst us. He says, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, that means because of this. Come out from their midst and be separate. And do not touch. doesn't just say don't eat. doesn't just say don't hug. It says do not touch what is unclean. We're not talking about people here. He's talking about unclean things. Because realize he's made the Gentiles clean. He made all these things. But he's saying there is sin that is unclean. Don't even touch it. You're set free from that. That's not who you are anymore. He says, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's a promise, he says in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, because of this, having these promises, beloved, what did he call you? Beloved. Before anything else, beloved, you're loved. Beloved, let us. Doesn't say let God do this. He says let us. Now, we're, God's the one doing the work. But let us. Cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, protecting or perfecting, sorry, holiness in the fear of God. Now, you know that your spirit was made holy right away when you got born again, right? But your lifestyle is perfected by walking with God. That you can live a holy lifestyle that reflects your status as a holy person when you start saying yes to God and no to everything else perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your heart. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, and a true apostle wouldn't. I don't speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his com coming, but also by the comfort which, with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. See, he wrote a letter that he thought, they're not going to like this. They may not want me back. And he said when all this was going on, something comforted him. It was Titus coming back and saying, the church is okay. And they miss you. You may not know this. I know this being in the position that, that God's put us in. 
I know what it's like when, like I've said before, being a pastor is kind of like setting up yourself to be dumped and never getting to dump anybody else. You're the one who always gets dumped sometimes. People leave and you, they're in your hearts and you love them. People reject and, and you don't know why they rejected you and it hurts. And there's such a comfort when these people say, when you hear the word that, you know what? They can't wait to see you again. He never let them out of his heart. He loved them so much that it made him so happy and encouraged that they had come to the place where they, they got over their offense, they got over the hurt, and said, we can't wait to see Brother Paul again. And it says this. He said, verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Do you realize what he's saying? That that repentance prevented you from suffering loss. Turning and repenting and coming back to God and saying, no, 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 I want to do things your way. I'm not doing that anymore prevented them from suffering further loss. The longer you rebel and just resist the work of the Spirit in your life and resist what God's saying and resist His Word and resist His correction, you'll suffer loss. And He does not want you to suffer loss. So He says, I'm thankful that you were made sorrowful. Not because I wanted you to be sorry. Not because I wanted you to feel bad. But because it brought repentance. And He said, in this case, it was God that wanted you to be sorry. Not so that you'd be sorry. So you stop doing what you're doing. It says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without what? Regret. No regret. Leading the salvation. Now in this case, he's not talking about being saved from hell. Because these are all believers that he's called saints. The, he's not talking about being saved from hell. He's talking about being delivered from the thing that's got them in bondage. He says, when you repent, that's the greatest thing. There might be something that you just can't seem to get out of, and it's bound you, and you keep finding yourself going back and back to the old things, and you just, you can't, I mean, why do I keep making the same dumb, stupid mistake? Why do I keep going back to it? And he says, you just, you just, you just repent and let God take care of it. Let his grace be sufficient. Let his grace empower you and enable you and cover you, and then he delivers you. Your job to say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm embracing your salvation. I need you. He's not asking, you see, he didn't ask them to fix everything, to get everything right, and to somehow make their lives perfect, and then God would take them back. No, he said, God never left you. But here's the deal. You repent, and he delivers you from it. He rescues you out. And it says this, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now let's just talk about that for a minute. Sorrow according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. Which means that once you turn, you don't go back and feel bad for all the things you've done wrong in your life. Get over it. Leave it to Jesus. Consider it covered, not just covered, but removed by the blood of Jesus. 
It's in, if, he, if God put it in the sea of forgetfulness, that's where it needs to be for me. It's not, it's not me anymore. He's removed it from my life. That's not who I am. I'm free. And I, I'm not, that's not a part of me. And, and the enemy can't ever bring that up again and accuse me of it. I'm free. I'm clean. I'm righteous. The sorrow, according to God, only is there so that you feel uncomfortable with sin and stop doing it. And in this case, we've used this before, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is like the surgeon here that says, buddy, you got something that's killing you, and I want to remove it. And he points at it. He's very specific. You see, when the enemy accuses you, he just says, you're a terrible person. All over. You're just gross. But when the Holy Spirit points out something in your life, he says this. I'm going to cut it out. You let me cut this out of you, and you're going to be free. Thank God. Oh, I'm free. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and say, you're just terrible. You're just gross. You're just icky. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, this, this isn't from me. This is wrong. You can be free. And he does surgery, and he cuts it out, and you're free. Whereas the enemy says, you're gross all over, and just takes that knife and just goes chest, stab, 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 stab. And just, you know, he's, he's not a delicate surgeon. He's not trying to cut it out. He's just trying to cut you up. But thank God, Jesus wants you delivered from that stuff. I mean, you're, you're set free, you're righteous, you're clean. He doesn't want you stuck in the mud. He wants to take you and just deliver you from it. So here's the deal. He says that sorrow is only supposed to be there so that you say, I need to stop doing this. But the sorrow of the world is not like that. The sorrow of the world keeps going. And even after you've stopped doing it, it just keeps going. And you feel bad and it's brought up again and up again and you just constantly feel condemned and just, just feel dirty and rotten all the time. And that will produce death in your life. You can't tolerate it. And it may seem holy to tolerate that. It may seem holy to beat yourself up for the rest of your life. Stop it. Stop it. Just embrace the grace of God. Embrace the blood of Jesus. And realize, in order for this to happen, they had to be honest and say, you're right. That's wrong. Because you know what they were doing? They were justifying what was happening. Now, I can only imagine, if, if we're talking about the incident in 1 Corinthians, maybe they said, well, as long as they love each other, right? I don't want to wreck two relationships. Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's my business, you know. I, I, they'll realize they're doing something wrong. No, no. So they, they, they sought to justify it. And at some point, somebody had the guts to say, no, that's wrong. And they stood up, and they restored that man. I don't know how long it took. I don't know what all went through. Because there's some harsh language. If you want to go back to 1 Corinthians and read it yourself, there's some harsh discipline. Some talk of turning that guy over so his soul would be saved. But the end product was he was restored. It says here, verse 11, For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. You see what that means? Where there was a wrong, 
Now it's being made right. Thank God. I want you to see, just for a moment, can we take a pause from that and look at the life of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a twerp. He was a jerk. I mean, he, he betrayed his own people and stole from the people that didn't have anything to give to start with and, and sided with the bad guys, the Romans, and not only took from them what the Romans, desi- what the Romans required, he took the taxes that the Romans were asking for and more to pad his own pockets. His own people hated him. What did Jesus do? Jesus sees him in the tree and sees that this guy has actually come and is making an effort to see Jesus. He calls him down and says, I'm coming to your house. He didn't say, fix your life and I might come over. He says, I'm coming to your house. And the moment Zacchaeus sits down with Jesus, he knows he's embraced. He knows he's loved. And he knows I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm going to stop it. I I know he he accepts me, and that empowers him to say, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. What does he stand up and do? Does he stand up and say, I didn't really do anything. I mean, you know, I had a good reason. My kids need to eat too. Did he try to do that? No, he said, in fact, what he said is, whatever I've stolen, I'll pay back four times. You see, Zacchaeus started to agree with Jesus. And he understood, hey, Jesus embraced me. He loves me, apparently. And so I'm not going to stay in this stuff anymore. And I'm not just going to pretend it never happened. You see, some, some of us would like to do that. Just pretend it never happened. You know, you've got to realize, because I know we're doing both sides here. I know you've got to realize you can't keep beating yourself up for the rest of your life. But there are going to be times in your life where you've wronged somebody, and God forgives you, and they may forgive you, But Jesus may say, you're clean, but you need to make that right. Thank God. That's good, isn't it? You make it right. He enables you to make it right. Thank God. I believe that God supplied whatever Zacchaeus needed, and he did the right thing. So it says that they actually, this brought avenging of wrong, that they not only stopped doing the bad, but they avenged it. I mean, it completely turned around. And it says this, In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. For although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. We'll close with this thought. You need to read every bit of Scripture in the Bible that will speak of your righteousness in Jesus, about your place in Him, about the forgiveness that He's offering, about the power of the grace of God, about the power of the blood of Jesus, and become convinced that He has paid the price. You can't pay, He's paid. Your qualification is belief. Repent, believe. Once you get that settled, we need to be secure in the fact that His blood strong enough, it's powerful enough to confront even the most ugly of sin in our life and obliterate it and set us free. The only way you're going to get set free is if you agree with Jesus. You agree with God. That's sin and that's wrong. Don't try, like I said before, Jesus did not come to justify the sin. He 
came to justify the sinner. He came to justify you. Don't try to justify your actions. Embrace the grace of God. Come forward and say, it's wrong. I don't want anything to do with it. It's not mine anymore. It's been put to death on the cross. I don't have to do that anymore. Don't try to say, well, you know, I, I mean, there were some reasons for it. Nah, I mean, I kind of, you know, stop that. Because what that is, is trying to establish your own righteousness. You're trying to build your own case, and you don't have a case. Your case, here's your case. The blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. I'm clean, I'm holy in Him, I'm righteous in Him. He paid the price. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm repenting, I'm turning, I don't want anything to do with it. That's your case. And let's be honest with each other. You don't have to tell everybody in the church what you did wrong. Because you know what? Some people can't handle that. Some people really, they're not Jesus, and they can't handle everything you tell them. It might help you to have a buddy that helps you out when you're struggling, but you know, your number one helper in a time of temptation. Now, I believe in a, brothers and sisters that will encourage and build you up. I believe in somebody you can call and say, you need to encourage me right now. But the biggest encourager you have is Jesus Christ. He is your high priest. And he says that whenever we're tempted, he comes to the aid. It says that whenever we need it, we can walk right into the throne room, the throne of grace, and find help and grace in a time of need. We can simply ask and say, God, I need your help. It says we come in confidently. And, and a few months ago, I talked about this very point. And this, is, this is the last that I'll say. The word confidently in the original language is not speaking of just a certain way of walking, a certain way of presenting yourself. It comes from a few, I mean, it, it's a compound word that talks about basically to speak boldly. And the word for speaking is right in there. It's how you talk. That when we come into the throne room of grace, it's not just how you walk in, it's how you speak when you get there. That when you talk to God, you've got a right to ask. You've got a right to speak to Him as someone who is clean through Jesus Christ. Because if you weren't clean, you couldn't go in. And yet He tells you to go in when you're being tempted. He tells you to go in when you're struggling. When you go in, here's the best thing you can do. Agree with God. Say, God, you see what's going on. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm not going to call it some fancy word. I'm not going to make up a euphemism. Here's what it is. You know what it is, and you, set, you died for that. And I believe I'm set free. I believe I don't have to struggle with that the rest of my life. The best way to struggle, not, I mean, the best way to never have to struggle with it again is don't be buddies with it. Don't invite it over for slumber parties. Don't dress it up and put perfume on it and hope that your dad doesn't smell it. Just, just make an enemy of it. Say, I've been embraced by the King of Kings. I don't need to embrace this stuff anymore. I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm set free in Jesus.